Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, how are you doing today? I've got an awesome, awesome person lined up for you guys. His name is Clarence Taylor. He has been married for nine years and he has five kids. That's a lot. I don't know if I want that many, but more power to you. (laughs) Currently, he owns Taylor Law Group. He's been practicing there since 2001 or practicing law since 2001. And in his practice, he specializes in high conflict divorce, high conflict custody, alimony, and abuse and neglect cases. He started out his journey of education at UGA and then went on to Georgia State. He has now has a doctorate of philosophy and a Juris Doctor. He's been a magistrate court judge and he's going to go into what that was like. Um, He has had several manuscripts published and the most exciting part about all of this is that he is on the board of Surviving to Thriving so we get to get his knowledge on a regular basis. So this is awesome. Uh, Clarence, I just want to know how did you decide that this is where you wanted to be in life? How did you get to this, this spot? In your life. Well, Heather, before I begin, before I get into that, I want to thank you and Zach for for all of your professionalism and your courtesy. I also want to thank you for the introduction. I greatly appreciate the time and, and the uh, the attention that you've given to to um, this cause. I do feel it's a, an extremely important cause, and I think that it has the potential to be both misunderstood and uh, and abused at time uh, at times. Um, frankly, um, you know, I I have always been a caretaker. Um, you know, and, and I recognized that role pretty early in my life, going through undergraduate, uh, my undergraduate degree. Uh, I started at North Georgia College, which is now, I believe, the um, uh, North Georgia College and State University and has subsequently become the University of North Georgia. Um, and from there, I transferred to the University of Georgia, where I actually finished up my degree. Um, at the time, I really thought that I would spend a, a, most of my time in, in the military as my career. I really was pretty gung-ho about, about spending time in the, in the military, uh, and unfortunately, that didn't work out for me. So I transferred to the University of Georgia, uh, where I finished my undergraduate. From, from the University of Georgia, um, I went to uh, Mississippi State where I finished a a master's degree from Mississippi State. I came back to Georgia State and finished my doctor of philosophy degree. During that period of time, which was the early 90s, uh, really from about 93 until 98, uh, I was in the doctoral program at at Georgia State University, and I I was uh, in the counseling and psychological services department. That gave me a tremendous insight into both human behavior and into kind of how to help people. Somewhere along the line, about 1996, uh, I, I became involved in a death penalty case. Uh, and I became involved in a death penalty case as a, as a non-testifying expert or as a consultant uh, trying to help deal with death penalty mitigation. From the mitigation angle, um, it, it really piqued my curiosity. It fascinated me. It gave me an interest in the law. 
And when I was getting ready to graduate from, from, with my doctorate in 1998, um, I, I decided to apply to law school. And lo and behold, I got in. Um, <laughs> truthfully, it was, it, you know, I got in and I loved the law, but I became really passionate about the law the deeper I delved into it. So in 1998, 1999, I, uh, I, I was a uh, law student at Georgia State. Uh, I finished in uh, December of 2000 which is just a little bit early, and began practicing in the area of family law, uh, really in May of 2001, uh, after I had studied for and passed the bar. Once I began getting into family law, which, which started in, in several courses through law school, um, I, I became increasingly uh, fascinated at the good that you can do um, in families who are otherwise in need. You know, people think of family law and they think, oh, it's, 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 it's simple. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's really, um, you know, not complicated. And the exact opposite is actually true. What you're doing, and I used to do a lot of criminal work. And, and when I did criminal work, I had an older and wiser criminal attorney tell me one time that, Clarence, you're going from criminal law where you get people who are in trouble, but they are on their very best behavior because they're trying to get out of it right into an arena where you have genuinely good people but they are at their absolute worst and they're at their worst because of the emotions involved right. your insight into psychology and your insight into kind of the dynamic that exists between people can give you the benefit moving forward through a family law case and from that standpoint i really wanted to help people i really saw people and there was a need um, you know, for both advocacy and understanding. Sometimes law can be blind, um, and they say that justice is blind, but it doesn't always have to be. You right. can bring compassion to the table. You can bring consideration to the table. You can bring understanding to the table, kindness and grace. You can also bring humility. Uh, and those are things that I really try to work through with my clients. My clients often come to me uh, in extremely vulnerable situations, in extremely vulnerable positions, and in dire need for direction. Uh, and there's, there's one thing that I tell them, every single one that walks through my door, the first thing that they have to do is get a good lawyer. If that is not me, then let me refer them to someone that I would trust in their situation. Yeah. First and foremost, they have to get a good lawyer someone that knows family law. You know, anyone can claim to be a general practitioner. A general practitioner won't cut it in family law, okay? They don't know the nuances. They don't know the ins and outs. They aren't going to be able to function as well as what that client may deserve. So find someone that they trust. Find someone that they have a good rapport with um, and find someone that they believe has their back. Also, understand that the second thing they need is that they need a good, strong relationship with God. Whoever their God is and however they define their God, they need that relationship because there are going to be some huge existential questions that they have to answer. You know, I am a very faith-based person. I understand my faith, but I don't impose that on anyone else. They need that for themselves because they are going to have some real existential and fundamental questions in going through this process, which is truthfully akin to a death. They're going to experience all of the stages of grief and, and anger and despair and finally acceptance and, and, and peace going through the process um, that, that, that you would experience understanding and going through a death because you're losing your best friend, your partner, the parent of your children, 
um, your significant other, the person that you thought you'd spend the rest of your life with, and it's difficult. Right. So they need that faith-based practitioner in place, whether it's a, a minister, a priest, a preacher, a rabbi, a cleric, whomever their faith-based practitioner is, they need that person in place. Third, they absolutely need a good therapist. They need a good therapist who can help them navigate these because as a lawyer, I am not their therapist. Right. As a lawyer, no lawyer should be put in that role. You know, they, they have to figure out what is going on internally and the mechanisms that, that are triggers for them to help them get through this process. Yeah. Um, fourth, and probably as important as anything else, they need a strong friends and family support network. That is hugely important. Yeah. And then fifth, they need a good CPA. Because while I know enough about taxes to be dangerous that I learned in law school, I also know enough to refer them out. So they need a good CPA. And with those five things in place, they can get through a high conflict custody case or a high conflict divorce or an issue dealing with domestic violence with as few scars as possible. Yeah. Okay. From a practice standpoint, my philosophy quite literally is I don't burn any bridges unless I absolutely have to. We try to exhaust every resource not financially, but legally, um, to reach an amicable settlement. But we do so only to the extent that we are allowed because we're only half the equation. And if we have to burn a bridge, we absolutely scorch it, but only to light the way forward. Right. Um, and I have no problem saying that. You know, the, the reality is that, you know, you're only half the equation. And as badly as you want to try, to remain amicable and amiable through this process, you can only control what you can do. And if ultimately push comes to shove, I, I have the same philosophy that Teddy Roosevelt has, which is walk softly and carry a big stick. Yep. And I have no problem saying that. Yeah. Okay. And I know that we talk in the past and, or that we, you know, you see Zach on a daily or on a weekly basis. And that's, you know, one of my favorite things that, you say is the one where you, if you're going to burn a bridge, you're going to scorch it. That's uh, it's impactful, but it's a, it's a good saying. And then definitely Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, that was actually going to be one of my questions to you was, you know, share those, those tidbits with us. Cause I think that they are um, awesome and, and very impactful. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So you know, I, I will tell you, Heather, if I can just expound just a little bit, mm -hmm. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like the greatest gift, it's like the, the prophet Khalil Gibran said, and I'm going to paraphrase, it's not exact, but he said, the greatest gift you can give is not possessions, but of yourself. And in my practice, I really try to give of myself. I have to feel a connection to my clients and I have to really believe I can help them. Um, otherwise, it's, it's, it's really, they're, they're better off and, and moving, moving to someone that they have a better connection with. Um, I don't accept every client that walks through my doors. Um, but I will tell you that if I believe I can help you, uh, I assure you that I will do everything within my power to do so. Yeah. Um, and, and like that's the, sa the same is true with the organization that you have founded, which I commend you for. You know, the reality is there's a tremendous need for that in the domestic violence arena, which oftentimes merges and, and kind of melds with domestic law. So 
You specialize in high conflict divorce and high custody <clears throat> now. How did that become your practice? You know, I know you were a part-time magistrate judge and then moved into doing um, what you do now. Was there a case that probably you can't fully talk about or give huge details on, but was there a case where you were like, I want to go into high conflict cases because this is, or was it, you know, you know, truthfully, uh, it, it has been an evolution over the last 19 years, and even maybe before then. Um, you know, um, obviously, um, as a as a as, after I got my PhD in psychology, um, I, I began noticing and 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 trying to effectuate change with kids. I, I long and the short of it is, um, I specialized in dealing with children, adolescents, and young adults as part of my my PhD. Uh, and began dealing with see, seeing the turmoil that, that really existed in um, children of divorce and, and especially high conflict divorce. Um, I then had to testify as a psychologist in a couple of cases where the parents were simply at odds with one another. Um, and, and one of the biggest things that we see in a practice globally and that I saw as a psychologist is this notion of you have two parents who both love their children who, who really are coming from a place of good intent, of parenting and of well-meaning, but they have completely different parenting styles. They couldn't be more opposite. One believes in, for example, the other view spanking as abusive. Right. You know, and how to merge or meld the two and, 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 and get them across this bridge, this hurdle, so that they realize that there may be a, a common thread. So that's where my, my interest actually began. Um, and and moving, moving that into moving into um, my first practice, my first uh, job out of law school with a boutique, um, with a boutique law firm that specialized in, in domestic law. You know, we had a, tr we had a lot of, a lot of high conflict cases. Um, and it kind of continued to fuel and feed that interest that I had in high conflict cases and in custody cases specifically. From that standpoint, I became, it, it fueled my interest and my, my desire. I then got involved in dealing with issues of parental alienation and um, issues related to the alienation of children from one parent and trying to understand what an alienating parent is versus what a target parent is. And the more I moved in that direction, it's almost like where there's a will, there's a way, or if you build it, to use Kevin Costner's term in A Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. You start seeing these things and more and more people begin to kind of gravitate toward you um, based on what you're saying, what you're doing, how you're handling cases, and that sort of thing. And that has kind of fueled my career so far. Awesome. Um, before we get into the depths of what you're really doing right now, I want to just go back real quick and touch on um, your role as a um, magistrate judge. I think that's fascinating that you were able to do that and then come out of that. So just, um, yeah, just a quick, how, how was that? What did you see? What did you do? What was it like? So here, here's what I'll tell you about being a magistrate judge. The best part of being a magistrate judge was getting to meet, honestly, the first responders and the police officers that take care of our community. 
as a, as a part-time magistrate judge, I was charged with signing warrants that came my way. In Cobb County, we have a, a magistrate court that, that, um, that is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we are constantly having officers come in who have genuine concerns and are asking for warrants to issue and bonds be set. And so my role as a part-time magistrate was to answer to the chief magistrate that I did and, and, and think a lot of, and then to meet and sign or review the warrants that, that existed um, that were being presented to me for crimes. Those crimes literally ranged from simple, simple things, from a, 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 a criminal trespass or theft by taking or theft by receiving or, or you know, or whatever, yeah. shoplifting, you know, or, or even, a, even a, a, just a simple battery. Yeah. Uh, which is not simple, but given the circumstances, it could be. Right. Two, you know, murder. And uh, I don't know if you remember. Uh, there, there were a couple of uh, uh, there were a couple of cases uh, several years ago in Cobb County. One involved a. It was right at Christmas time. Um, it involved a, a, a gentleman getting killed because he uh, he was assaulted by a guy who was operating. Christmas tree farm and the guy had shoved a hammer in the back of his head and pulled part of his part of his brain out well that was a case that was my warrant so I you know so the reality is I have the utmost respect for the the thin blue line as they say and the thin red line yeah. uh, these officers and first responders and our, and our military I don't want to exclude them to include your husband Zach and my son I have two sons that were in the army um, one who served in Afghanistan as well. You know, I have the utmost respect and admiration. If, if I looked at you and said, who are your heroes? I've got a, I've got a few, but those as a group are my heroes. Um, and so, and so, you know, that was the highlight of my magistrate job. My yeah, magistrate that, career. That's you actually know, how you that, huh? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. A yeah. long time ago. Right. I won't hold that against him if he doesn't hold it against me. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I was not a police officer when you were a judge, but I know he was. Um, and so I remember seeing um, cases that went to trial years later, seeing your name on the bottom of the warrants. So definitely, right. yeah, it would just getting that the whole full circle is awesome. So I kind of want to ask, is there a story or instant that you can share from a client that you helped who has gone from surviving to thriving? Um, there, there are a lot. In fact, there, there are, there, there are so many that I, that I, I, I almost hesitate to pick one. Yeah. I will tell you that I have a case that exists right now. Um, that, that is, that is over that my client, um, um, we had a, a protective order. We were able to get a protective order for her. Her husband had frankly had been pretty brutal towards her, had threatened to, uh, pour, uh, boiling water and scald her private parts because she left him, um, had done a whole bunch of things um, that were, were really unconscionable. They were, they, they were really unbelievable. Um, and we were able to secure a TPO. And then finally, after that was about to expire, we were able to secure a permanent protective order for her. 
She and her children are thriving right now. They have gotten the resources available to them through the community in Cobb County. We have a great set of resources that we can rely on, one of which is, is your organization. And one of the things that I've noticed about, about victims of domestic violence, and I think it's important that we define that at least first, and then we move into understanding that this is, this is a gender neutral area because I have an equal success story from a man who was, who was literally being terrorized mm-hmm. by, by, by his, his wife. Um, you know, the reality though is that we define what domestic violence is in, in, in Georgia um, and, 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 and how it can, can affect a person. You know, and the first thing we need to do, I think, is, is talk about what it is. And domestic violence in Georgia is, is any act between spouses, former spouses, common parents of a child, foster parents of a child, or any person in, a, in the same home or formerly in the same home that is either a felony or is a, what would otherwise be considered a crime against the person, a, a, a battery, an assault, a simple assault, a simple battery, anything that is a crime that causes them reasonable apprehension or fear for their health and their safety, okay, or that of their children. And I think that's tremendously important. Now, what, what domestic violence is not, and this is where it gets tricky in my field, domestic violence is not normal or ordinary discipline of a child right you know and that's where it gets a little hairy in my business because you get one parent who says i believe in spanking you get another one that says absolutely not that's abusive i'm getting a tpo against you and a tpo is a temporary protective order that's issued by the court Um, and so it gets a little spurious and difficult to define at that point you know but once you define it um, you know, one of the biggest things that happens is you have to ensure that those, those people who have been violated, for lack of a better way of putting it, or have, have had acts of domestic violence committed against them, have the, both the physical, financial, and emotional resources to handle life on their own. You know, they have to understand what domestic violence is and what it is not. Right. They have to then understand what it's like to live without the control, the dictatorial nature, the finances, or whatever um, from the other spouse, and what it looks like on a daily basis to live without that, that other person. Right. Um, then they have to start redefining their role, and they do that through, I think they do that most of the time, and, and, and in the best manner, through therapy redefining what took them into this place to begin with. How did they get where they are? And number two, why did it take them this amount of time or this period to get out of it? Right. You know, and, and, and with those things being defined and with them learning how to live outside of this other person, they're, they're on their way to thriving. And that's where I think an organization like yours comes into play. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's what, you know, exactly what we want to bring to our clients is, you know, teaching them how to live without somebody controlling their every move. How do you do that? And how do you do it well? And how do you do it without reverting back? Um, And so definitely something that we, 
are working towards accomplishing as a um, organization and you being on the board is definitely going to push that forward and help that. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on was you mentioned this fancy TPO word and um, which stands for temporary protective order. Uh, can you go into how you get that? Because I know that it's um, in, thrown around a lot, right? Everybody's like, I'm going to go get a TPO. How difficult is it to get one? What, what do you need to have in place and what goes into actually getting that and then taking the step forward of getting a permanent protective order? Because I know it's actually a lot harder than people think it is. And so that'd be a great thing to, for people to, to know. Sure, sure. First of all, I think, I think, I think protective orders are absolutely necessary. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the way that, 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 that we do it. Uh, so I'm going to speak in general terms in terms of the state of Georgia, but, but also specifically my experiences in the kind of the Northwest corridor of the, of the state. The truth of the matter though is, you know, um, when you have a victim of domestic violence, um, if they have, they have suffered based on the, what we've talked about previously, was suffered from some, something that is a, an act of domestic violence. And I think it's important for me to break it out a little further and say, look, domestic violence can be acts of, of commission, meaning actual acts that occur, things that people do or have done, but it can also be, you know, it can also be psychological, emotional, sexual, you know, it could be things like unlawful restraint, you know, a husband that doesn't let his wife call 911 or doesn't let his wife leave the home, a wife that dictates and, 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 you know, certain things to the husband, it can be, you know, those sorts of things, if they are severe enough and extreme enough to cause reasonable apprehension, and fear for your health, safety, well-being, or that of your children. I'll give you a classic example. I have another case where uh, my client was able to secure a TPO, and she was able to secure a TPA because of, because of all of the harassment that was coming from her husband after the divorce was filed. She was able to secure it because of the nature of the emails and the threatening posture that her husband had taken. In addition, he had moved next door. He had set up cameras to focus on her, where she was living. He was in her driveway. You know, there, there are any number of things that can be intimidating conduct that's not actual physical conduct. Right. Okay. And once, once you've identified the behavior or, or the behaviors, you know, in Cobb County, what we do, and in several of the outlying counties, you have victim advocates. Yep. You go to the superior court of your county. You literally speak to the victim advocate. If you don't have a victim advocate, and, and a lot of times your attorney will go with you, but it's important for this to be your story and it to be genuine. Um, you, you then fill out a petition for what is called an ex parte protective order. An ex parte order simply means that you're asking the court to grant it without the other party being there. Now, the other party is going to get their opportunity in court, but at that particular moment, you're, you are telling your story to the court, you know, um, and your story is what the court hears. It is always beneficial to the court if you have a police report, if, if the opposing party has been arrested, or if there is some sort of physical proof, if there's um, 
damage to the walls. I had one client that she was, she, she would try to go to the restroom. Um, and when she would go to the restroom, her husband would just walk in on it. Okay. And it reached the point that she locked the door. So her husband removed the door from his hinges. So one of the pieces of evidence that we used was the fact that he had removed the door from its hinges and allowed her no privacy, privacy, even, even something as private as using the restroom. Right. Um, and we were able to secure a TPO for her, but we were able to do that by showing the court pictures and allowing her to tell her story to the court right. in a succinct but concise way. Okay. Once you have that, the victim advocate will typically take you to the superior court judge. The judge will then hear your story a second time. And if the judge deems that the, the threat is real, they will err on the side of caution or will just issue the TPO. At that point, the TPO is still just kind of, you're the only one that knows about it. Right. At that moment, the, the court will file it they will send it to the sheriff's office and the sheriff will serve it immediately. Um, it's really important for you as a victim to not have any further contact with your ex from that moment forward. Yes. Because the easiest way for, a, for a, an aggressor, um, the easiest way for an abusive person, the easiest way for a defendant who is maniacal to show that you are not afraid of him or her is for you to start talking to them again. Right. After the TPO issues. Okay. Now I'm not telling you to do something that is unjust or wrong. I want you to understand that it's important that this be your story and that it be the truth. Because one of the biggest concerns I have as a domestic lawyer is how often these things are used in conjunction with a divorce simply to gain a leg up in litigation and to make a custody grab for kids. Yeah. And that happens far too often. Most commonly it is simply a misunderstanding in those situations, or it is the parent who spanks the child and the, and, and, and the other parent decides it was too hard or too harsh. Yeah. So they rush to the courthouse they're already having problems and now they have these glasses on that they see everything through a really negative light when it doesn't need to be and cooler heads should prevail. But with that being said, you know, the reality then becomes once you have the TPO, there will be a period in Cobb County. It's usually seven to 10 days. It can be as much as 30 days between when the TPO issues and when you have a you have a, a hearing to see if the TPA's TPA the ex parte TPO is going to be granted for 12 months. Now, once you get into that hearing, it's important for you to tell your story again. And it's important for you to tell it from a place of integrity and build credibility. And at that point, your TPO is in existence for the next 12 months. Any violation, and this is what's important when you're representing someone who is accused of domestic violence, they can't reach out to this to their spouse or to their 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 former spouse. They can't try to talk to them about it. They can't use the kids as a conduit or go-between to, to address the issues. 
they can't do text or, or, or try to have friends speak to them. That becomes a violation of the ex parte order. And it is subject to them being rearrested and potentially being charged or them being arrested and potentially charged with aggravated stalking. And that becomes a bigger issue. So if you are on the other side of an allegation of domestic violence, it becomes important for you and incumbent upon you to get a good lawyer experienced with dealing with these issues that can that knows what to do and how to do it um, and, and move forward from there. Yeah. Um, on the reverse side as well, if you are the victim and you reach out to your spouse, that kind that violates the TPO as well and can potentially get it nullified, right? If well, that, that's actually, you're exactly right. And that's the easiest way for a defense lawyer to come in and have the TPO thrown out completely. Yeah. Because by reaching out to the, to the aggressor, you are in essence saying, yes, I've got this order of protection, but I'm not really afraid of him or her. Look, I'm even reaching out to them, trying to engage them in dialogue. And that tells a court right away, almost unequivocally, you're not afraid of them. This is not a situation where we're going to extend the TPO. Right. Yeah. You are 100% correct. It will negate and nullify the order once you get to a hearing. Right. And, and then, that goes for things as simple as texting. You know, I, I see all the time spouses, mm -hmm. they, they can't work out the finances after a TPO hits and, and one spouse is, is afraid of, you know, not having any money. So they reach out to the aggressor spouse. Well, that is showing the court you're not afraid of them. And it will, it will cause the TPO to be thrown out. So what resources do you use in the community besides obviously our foundation or our organization? Um, and what should other people that may not live in Cobb County or Georgia look for in their areas? So there, the state has, every state, and I think this is important, every state has an organization dedicated to the prevention of domestic violence. They are all, they're also national organizations dedicated to the prevention of domestic violence and the stopping of abuse. Those are phenomenal organizations to start with. They can guide you into other more local resources. Here in Cobb County, we have a vast network of organizations that start with the court itself. You know, Cobb County Superior Courts, Cherokee County Superior Courts, Paulding County Superior Courts, um, you know, all of the metro areas basically have tremendous resources that are available at the courthouse, depending on the facts of your specific case. Do you need shelter? Do you need money? Do you need resources? Do you need clothing? Do you need food? You know, or do you need <coughs> whatever you need they can provide? From that standpoint, you get referred to organizations like yours. You get referred to organizations that, that can provide additional assistance. It's particularly true if you're in a domestic situation where there is some substantial abuse and that you may have to go to what's classically called or, or, or often referred to as a battered women's shelter, you know, where it is a locked secretive facility to help you get away from the potential threat that you're facing. You know, those all start in my mind and in my opinion with going to the courthouse to begin with and, and speaking to the victim advocate. From that standpoint, 
other organizations are out there. Um, even some as simple as, as the local Kiwanis or the local Rotarian organizations. Um, the local juvenile courts have, have organizations for children. You know, so they're, they're really all over and they're, they're really too numerous to mention in, in, yeah. in this podcast. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just uh, wrapping up here, what are you mo- working on now and what are, what are you doing moving forward in your practice um, to grow and, and reach more people? You know, the first thing, the first thing I'm trying to do is, is, is remain really super mindful uh, of, of giving back. I, I've really uh, reached a point in my practice where I'm, I'm really interested in dedicating and, and giving more of myself uh, than of my possessions. And uh, so I'm really trying to be mindful and very, very, very respectful of that. But the reality is, what does that translate into? Uh, I am still focused on high conflict custody cases and high conflict divorces. Um, I'm still interested in helping. Look, I, I like representing the underdog. I like fighting like hell. That's what I do, you know? Yeah. And I like being underestimated. I, I relish that. Um, you know, I want to be the guy that, um, that, that, that kind of is the quietest in the room, but when he speaks, speaks with the most passion and the most knowledge and the best plan. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in, in, in doing a, a, a heavy, high volume of business. I'm interested in actually helping people and watching them grow and become better people as a result of it. Um, as I said, you know, my passion lies in helping people and, and, and being a, in many regards a caretaker. Um, and so that's what I continue to grow my practice with and, and continue to focus on. So these next two questions kind of go hand in hand. What piece of advice can you recommend to our listeners to get them through a tough situation? And is there any book or quote or podcast ebook that gives you strength in tough times? Wow. You're putting me on the spot now. I'll have to really think about that, but um, I I will tell you, that I have a, a, a lot of really, I'm, I'm a pretty voracious reader. And um, I, I will tell you that, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of things come to mind. Um, the first thing I, I would encourage someone going through a tough time um, to remember is, is to establish your faith uh, and to continue to have faith, but also take action. Uh, in other words, have faith in yourself, have faith in God, but do not allow a negative situation to continue. Take action. And that means within yourself and externally, you know, make the decision and move forward. Um, and it, start, it, it starts with yourself, from yourself. You know, I, I'll also tell you something else that, that rang true to me. You know, what most parents don't realize, and, and, most, and I, I experienced this a lot. I want parents to, and, 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 you know, spouses to remember that, you know, the first, the first girlfriend a little boy ever has is his mother. If he is watching his dad beat up on his mom, then that's the behavior he's going to learn. And likewise, the first boyfriend that a little girl ever has is her dad. You know, and if she's watching her mom, beat up on her dad, that's the behavior she's going to learn. Try to understand that you are a model for your kids. Try to understand that it impacts them tremendously. 
and so it is also incumbent upon you not to model behavior accepting abuse to your kids because it will perpetuate itself. Range true in the cycle of violence and the, the cycle of abuse. It leaks not just from your relationship between the, the true cycle of abuse, but as well as the familial cycle as well. So definitely exactly right. Last question. If our listeners want to find you or reach out to you, what's the best way that they can do that? You know what? I, I, I would love to hear if they have questions, I'm happy to help in any way that I can. Uh, if they need help getting through a tough time, let me know. Um, you know, the reality is you can reach me all the time um, on my website or via email. My website is www.georgiaciviljustice.com. Georgia's abbreviated, so it's G-A-C-I-V-I-L-J-U-S-T-I-C-E.com. My office number is 678-738-0056. And you can find me on Facebook at Clarence O'Taylor the Fourth PC. Um, and I'm happy to help in any way I can, Heather. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Listen, I do, I do need to say something to your yeah. husband, Zach. <laughs> yeah, good for it. Do you want me to stop? Oh. Go Navy, beat Army. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> You've been waiting the whole time <laughs> to <have>. do that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, on that note, <laughs> Clarence, thank you so much for coming on and giving your expertise and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Thanks so much, Heather. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys have a great day. Thanks, you too. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, thriving, A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.